my name is Natalie Alexander and welcome to The Next Page, the podcast of the United Nations Library, Geneva. In this episode, we begin our Library Talk series, which brings to you selected recordings from our Library Talks program. We begin this series with a talk by author, academic and former executive secretary of the UN Economic Commission for Africa, Carlos Lopez. He presents to us his book, Africa in Transformation, Economic Development in the Age of Doubt, published this year, 2019. In this talk, he shares the premise of the book, highlighting the eight challenges he sees as critical to face in the transformation of the African continent today. For this discussion, he sits down with our director of the UN Library Geneva, Francesco Pisano. Here's a curated recording of this session. Hope you enjoy. Good afternoon. Welcome everyone to our library for this book presentation and much more than a book presentation. We are privileged today to have uh, Professor Carlos Lopez here with us at the UN, UN that he knows very well. Tell us about your latest book, especially. So is the title of this event is the title of your book. And it's a very important title, African Transformation, Economic Development to the Age of Doubt is certainly uh, a very good reason to be here today. I read the book and there are two things that were striking to me. One, it is very assertive, it's very clear. And the second is as, as someone who wear glasses, it was actually as some glasses, foggy glasses were removed from before my eyes and I could see things. I'm an international uh, student for years, a politologist, but I ever, ne I never seen Africa so clearly as through the pages of your book. So uh, let's give our audience a walk through the book, please. Before we go on specific, I have specific question on mm -hmm. the challenges and the remedies, why yeah. you choose to put emphasis on industrial revolution. I want to get there before we're done, before the question and answers. Mm -hmm. But first, the overview. Not everyone has read the book. There are books, there are books on sale in the back, but they're not enough for everyone. So I would like my audience to leave uh, having a sense being able to talk a little bit about the book. Why don't you talk us, to, the, to us about the book, please? Thank you. Well, this book, is an, it, it has a lot of uh, provocations. So it's a, it's a provocative book. And it is provocative on purpose because there is a need to be counterintuitive when we speak about Africa. Because there are lots of perceptions that are well-established, most of them apparently with evidence-based views, and opinions, and I think it is very important to deconstruct some of those views before you actually can propose a certain number of alternative uh, perceptions and alternative narratives about the continent. So that was the main intention. Uh, but the second intention was to go against the developing of an Africa rising narrative that is too simplistic because it doesn't embrace complexity. And this Africa rising narrative has been born out of the desire to demonstrate to the big corporations that there are opportunities in Africa that are not being seized by business, which I have nothing against, but I think is limited. It's a narrow view of what is happening in the continent. So what is happening? I needed to establish my own prefer preference list 
of what is happening. And I end up with eight challenges that are presented in the book. And for each one of the challenges, I have deconstructed the current narrative and then, you know, propose what I think are very good policy recommendations for us to move forward. So that's, that's basically how it is framed. But let me just uh, to embrace complexity, start from the standpoint of how much people think they know about the continent. So I end up demonstrating that, you know, if you are talking about the economy, and this is a book about the economic perspective, most and foremost, that's why it's called uh, African Transformation, Economic Development in the Age of Doubt. And the first thing that you have to bear in mind is that economists work with an instrument that is absolutely essential, which are the national accounts. So when you hear GDP, you hear macroeconomic indicators, you know, they are all based on or anchored in this absolute key instrument, national accounts. National accounts have their own methodology, which is approved by the UN Statistical Commission, and countries adhere to it and are part of formulating any updates to it, and uh, they are supposed to follow it. So here starts the problem. There are only 16 countries out of 55 that have their national accounts up to date, which means that either they have failed methodologically or even failed to produce national accounts on time. So this immediately poses questions about whether we know enough about the structure of the economies and whether we know enough about the size of the economies. We know for sure that for each country that is late more than five years, which is the recommended time lag for national accounts comparisons, for each year they are late, they are missing in every single rebasing exercise that has been done in the continent, they are missing between two, 2.1% GDP size. So if you combine this in terms of the current sizes and the lateness of the different countries, we are missing about 21, 22% GDP size for the entire continent. That's a lot. And obviously, if you, if you, if you don't know this, uh, everything that you say thereafter is problematic. For instance, you say the debt to GDP ratio is X, but obviously, if the GDP is underestimated, we are underestimating also the ratio. And you can go on. Uh, fiscal pressure, uh, the, the amount of um, taxes that a country collects. In Africa, the, one of the lowest in the world, right now about 16% fiscal pressure against an average in the world of about 35%. Well, if the GDP is underestimated, so is the fiscal pressure. So probably the fiscal pressure is even below 16% which is dramatic and tells you immediately lots of stories. For instance, the country in the continent officially that has the lowest GDP um, to adapt, uh, sorry, GDP to fiscal pressure relationship is the largest economy, Nigeria. Uh, fiscal pressure in Nigeria is about 7%. Nigeria is not one of the countries that is late in producing their national accounts because they did a rebasing exercise that made their economy jump more than 30% in one go. Now, what does, does this tell you? This tell you, tells you that the economy of Nigeria is poorly managed because they can't even 
get to the African average fiscal pressure. So they are depending much more on receipts from oil than they are from, you know, actually taxing their economy and managing their economy. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, Africa has a big, big problem with civil registration. We have about 40% of the African population that doesn't have civil registration. So from the day people are born until they die, they don't have any formal transaction that requires a document, ID or something, which means that a lot of the transactions are done informally because people actually do live and do have economic activity, but they don't need any documents until they die, 40%. Then you go to your territory because you need to know your economy, you need to know your people, and you need to know your territory. Then we realize that about 1% of the entire land of the continent has official formal registration. So you can imagine the mess in terms of the land tenure systems. So the question is, if we don't know the economy, we don't know the people, we don't know the territory, what do we know? So here starts the problem. What we know mostly are projections. Projections that are made by institutions like this one, where we are, and by the World Bank, by the IMF. But these projections have more and more shaky ground because the anchorage of, of uh, projections has to be solid primary data points, and we don't have them. So the book goes into the detail of the implications of this, which are massive. So when you hear about Africa rising, what does it, what does it mean? You know, how much can you believe it if you don't know this much? If you hear about these incredible demographic projections about the continent, some are you know, scaring the world. <laughs> uh, how much can you believe in them? Because, you know, you even have 40% of your population that doesn't have a, an ID. So we have a problem. And this is just the beginning of the confusion. So the, the book goes through eight challenges that I consider the most important. So just going one by one, the first one obviously is politics. Huh? So how do we fix politics? We are at the time where the entire world is questioning the quality of political representation. You know, democracy is defined mostly by the quality of political representation. There are lots of doubts about how this is unfolding. So in the case of Africa, the, the debate is quite uh, livid. Some will use, you know, what is happening in certain countries that have been capable of incredible progress and performance on economic fronts as having questioned democratic credentials. So I'm not going to hide because you know everybody said I speak too frankly. So is Kagame really the model or not? And then what you realize is that you know his definition of democracy is that when you finish a genocide, and I'm using the word provocatively on purpose, you finish a genocide. What do you do next? You go and have elections, because this is more or less what we normally recommend countries to do. You finish a conflict, you go for elections. Well, in principle, after a conflict, you have a, an, a level of social tension and political tension that would recommend something slightly different. 
you need to build the citizenry to a level of uh, understanding of each other that will allow them to have competitive politics. You don't start with competitive politics because you are going to exacerbate ethnic tension, all kinds of tensions that were the generators of conflict in the first place. So there is a time for consensual democracy, which in the European terms was the building of the nation, the nationhood. And there is a time for competitive politics, which is when you have that nationhood well established. So the premises are no longer questionable. Therefore, people can start with something else. So provocatively in the book, I say, should Africa democratize or should democracy be Africanized? So are we supposed to do a democratization of Africa or an Africanization of democracy? What would be the Africanization of democracy? Demonstration of African agency to adjust its democratic experiment to the specific situations and contexts that exist in the continent. And that brings me to the second chapter, which is about respecting diversity, which I consider the second biggest challenge. Because in Africa, we are very good at saying that we are all friendly to each other. We have this communal uh, uh, historical route and everybody is in solidarity. We help each other. But then the demonstration in political terms is that we are very disrespectful of diversity. We respect minorities. It's normally winner takes all. The one that wins, you know, doesn't want to deal with divergence. We have racial and ethnic tensions. We have uh, intra, uh, intra-nation or intrastate conflicts that derive from levels of education, class, all, all kinds of reasons. So my, my premise in this chapter is to demonstrate that the countries that have the most successful democratic experiment in the continent are the ones that are capable of demonstrating respect for diversity. So let's go and learn from them. And we have different examples. You can go to island states that have been very successful, like Mauritius, uh, Cape Verde, or uh, Seychelles, all the way to some uh, examples in the continent itself, like uh, Botswana, and try to understand what were the ingredients that made them successful. So that's basically the, the basis of, the, of this chapter. Then the third one is about how then, once you deal with the political challenges, Africa increases its policy space, the, the space to be able to decide on its own. And here I revisit uh, the Washington consensus. Now, I revisit the Washington consensus, now everybody, has kind of buried the Washington Consensus, which was promoted by Bretton Woods institutions in the 80s and the 90s. And amongst those who buried it, you have the IMF and the World Bank. So we are all in agreement that it was a bad thing. But it is important to revisit what happened so it doesn't happen again. Because we have very interesting characteristics in some of the austerity programs of the IMF today, including in Europe, that resuscitate some of the elements 
of the Washington Consensus. So my, my point here in this chapter is to say, the evaluation departments of these institutions, which produced amazing reports that I read very carefully, say it better than any other you know, circumstantial uh, personality that didn't like the Washington Consensus for ideological, political, or other reasons. Because what they say is that we, we witnessed intellectual dishonesty, their words, evaluation department of the IMAT. And they say there was a lot of group thinking. And they go even further to say that statistics were fabricated to actually confirm findings that were already predetermined. This is amazing. I mean, we are talking about responsible international organizations that are considered by their evaluation departments as doing these things. So we really have to go in detail, and I go in detail in the book, to, to, to demonstrate that this debate was much more vigorous inside these organizations probably than outside. And some of the research departments of these organizations were ahead in proposing solutions. And they produced a lot of Nobel Prize winners, including uh, Stieglitz. Uh, and you know, it's very interesting reading because it, you don't need to critique from the outside because it was better done inside. And then from there, I go into the limits of the Millennium Development Goals experiment to demonstrate that the Millennium Development Goals were developed with the premise that these were universal goals and targets. Then they were translated ipsis verbis to the national realities, and that was wrong. Why is it wrong? Well, let, let's take uh, reducing poverty by half. If you have 80% of your po population that is uh, under poverty, and you have to reduce by half, you have to reduce 40% of your population from poverty. If you have 8%, you have to reduce by 4%. But they are going to do it in the same time frame. This is absurd from a statistical point of view. But this is what we said to people. And guess who was set to fail? The ones that start the lowest point, i.e. African countries. So I'm trying to say that the African countries were set to fail, not on purpose, it was not a plot, but because of this convenience of just translating targets, indicators, without having the accuracy and, 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 and the methodological finesse that is required. And this is because it fits, it fits our view of Africa. They always fail, so I fail in this one too. So what is the big deal? The big deal is that you are putting a marathonist to run the same course as a sprinter. So it's obviously who is going to win that course. The sprinter has 100 meters to go, and the marathonist has 10 kilometers. Well, fine. That's what happened. So I'm trying to say that when we got into the Millennium Development Goals, the biggest, the biggest success was that we shifted from prescriptive policies in the time of structural adjustment to the very comfortable position for African countries of having goals instead of prescriptive policies. Goals means you can go your way. So although the goals were absolutely fabricated from a statistical point of view, they gave policy space. And we need more of that to be protected. And I'm not so sure 
that sustainable development goals contribute to that same policy space opening. And I explain why, and I give some reasons that African countries have to, you know, seize and, and, and use. Then the next uh, challenge is industrialization. Well, we have a debate amongst economists that uh, structural transformation is the way to go. Structural transformation has had many incarnations. Uh, it has produced a, a Nobel Prize winner from uh, St. Lucia Island, uh, Sir uh, Arthur Lewis, which I always say, you know, this island is phenomenal. You have to go there because it's a very small, tiny island that has produced two Nobel Prize winners, one in literature and one in economics. So they have the highest ratio of Nobel Prize producers in the world. Arthur Lewis basically you know, uh, framed the idea that labor, when it moves from agriculture, primary sector, to the urban areas, industrialization sets, sets in. You have a transfer of you know, how you measure productivity, how you measure you know, generation of employment, and a number of other factors that have been defined as structural transformation. So the premise of it is industrialization. So all countries have to go through this. Guess there is one region that has gone very slowly on this. That's Africa. So it's the last frontier for industrialization. It doesn't mean it doesn't have it. Africa produces about $500 billion worth of goods from its industrial sector but it's very small in relation to the size of the economy. So I tried to demonstrate how we should go about industrialization. And I tried to beat the pessimism that is settling in, this, in the discussions right now about what is called premature de-industrialization, which has very prominent economists defending that the time to do industrialization, the old fashioned way is gone, and because of robotization, automation, and a number of factors that influence the way we measure productivity, it's very difficult now to get into industrialization the way it was described in the classics of structural transformation. I dispute this. And in the book, I demonstrate why I dispute this. I cannot go into details here in, in this introduction, maybe in the Q&A. Then the next one is agriculture. So how do we increase agricultural productivity? For me, the challenge has been the way Africa has treated agriculture as a social rather than an economic sector. What I mean by social sector? Because every single program, including the ones promoted by most of the UN institutions, is either about drought resilience, poverty reduction, food security, combat against anger, and the list continues. You don't hear much about making this an amazing transformation of economic opportunity. Because we have dissociated in the policy level, in most African countries, industrialization from agriculture as if they were competitors. Even today, if I talk to leaders, and you know, in the room there is the Minister of Agriculture, the first thing the Minister of Agriculture will say, oh, why are you insisting on industrialization? I'm going to be affected. We have more population in the primary sector. That is a complete stupid statement because agricultural productivity never increases without industrialization. 
It's a link between the two. So to demonstrate this link is extremely important politically because it's the only way we are going to convince that you know, when you put in place the right infrastructure, the value chains are well studied, you have access to credit, you create incentives, et cetera, you are going to transform agricultural productivity. Africa has the lowest yield per hectare average in the world. And when you talk to leaders, they will say, we have 60% of the non-used arable land in reserve. This is an amazing opportunity. I say, wait a minute. First, you have to say that we are losing 30% of the already produced um, yields because of lack of refrigeration, transportation, uh, no, no proper you know, crop uh, follow-up, and so on and so forth. 30%. Now, of what is left, you have actually, the yields are so poor, so low, that we are not even, you know, appearing in the comparisons internationally of countries that are making a little progress in terms of uh, agricultural productivity results. So this is, this is very serious because we have 60% of the population that is in the primary sector. And the, their contribution to GDP has been going down. Right now, it's about 10%, which, you know, just to give you an idea, is the same as the contribution of uh, telecoms to Africa combined GDP. But telecoms doesn't employ much people. So if you have 60% and they only produce about 10% of your economy, obviously, they are going to live in poverty. That's what we have to change. And I think, you know, in the book, I try to present some ideas on how to go about it. Then we have the issue of uh, social contract. It's my next challenge. Because the social contract was defined by Rousseau in very simple terms. And we are in the city of Rousseau. That's why I'm mentioning it too. So Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, okay, we have to look into intergenerational solidarity. The words are mine, but the idea is his. He didn't express it in these words. What he, what he did say is that we need to move from a situation where this solidarity that exists within families goes into the nation, the community. And to do that, the state has to play a role. And he defines that role and the characteristics of what we are known now as the social contract in, in, in a book that has become the reference and has since been revisited many times. And the last interaction of that is actually how we define sustainable development. What is sustainable development? I say it's three pillars. It's three pillars. What are the three pillars? Social, economic, and environmental. Well, it's not uh, any different from what Rousseau said. We are saying that we need to preserve the planet for the future generations. Well, that's what Rousseau said. He didn't say it in those terms. It's the same philosophical principle. You all remember that Rousseau was about the bon sauvage. So he was the first to say we have to respect the environment. So he was there. But that was 300 years ago. So where are we going to be in the future? In the book, I say, well, that's the entry point to discuss demographics in Africa. Because most of the population of the world is aging. Some are aging so fast that you have, you know, average age increasing one or two years every year, like in Japan. 
currently with 110 million inhabitants and projected to have only about 90 million by the end of the century because of the fertility rates being so low and the expansion of longevity. People live much longer. So you have this problem and there is only one region that is producing, because of its fertility, a lot of young people. So right now, one in every two babies are African and increasing. Average age in Europe right now, approaching 50. Not yet there, but approaching. Average age in Africa right now, 19 years and going down. This is very important to now introduce in the discussion about intergenerational solidarity. Because what we are asking is for countries that are rich, where people live longer because they are rich, to exercise intergenerational solidarity, not with their children, because their fertility is very low, but with young people that are in other regions. Is this really something that people can buy? It's very difficult. That's why you have populists. That's why you have these movements against migration. It's philosophical. We are asking with sustainable development goals to attain in just about 15 years the dream situation of leaving no one behind. Is that possible? If you go into the indicators, it says that we are going to finish with poverty. Extreme poverty will be, will be ending by 2030. We are going to finish with most of the diseases. We are going to increase education for almost everybody. Is that realistic? That's the proposal of intergenerational solidarity. So I revisit from an African perspective saying, well, that would be dreamland, but what is happening is exactly the opposite. Reduction of development aid, uh, increase of climate uh, consequences. Everything is going in the wrong direction. We are taking the wrong turn. So why are we saying and promising these big things? That's the chapter that deals with the social contract. And then I, 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 I say that the asymmetrics of the current multilateral regimes and governance uh, if they are anything to stand by, you know, are proving us that Africans really don't stand a chance if they don't fight. And then I propose how to fight. Then the next chapter, obviously, is about climate. And on climate, I revisit the issues of, uh, traditional issues of why Africans have been told to basically be content with the climate adaptation projects instead of being seen as actually the actors for the real climate transformation of the planet. Because they have the largest potential of renewable energies, because they can do industrialization the green way, because right now, if you industrialize as a latecomer, you, leap, you leapfrog and produce your power with the same costs renewable that you have costs in fossil fuels, that it is much more easier to retrofit, sorry, much more difficult to retrofit infrastructure to make it sustainable infrastructure with the latest sustainable materials than it is for those who are starting to construct. So most of the infrastructure in Africa is going to develop from now on. It's the case already, et cetera, et cetera. Then all the way to the blue economy, why we are not doing the right things. 
I revisit this debate and try to propose a different reading of what should be the role of Africans on climate change. And last but not least, the, the latest challenge in the book, the last challenge rather, in the book is the relations with China. Why? Because the shape of that relationship is going to determine how Africa is going to partner with different regions of the world. It is this, this relationship, once mastered, that is going to define the new Africa role in the global scene. And I make the case here for African agency, how that agency has to be demonstrated in different negotiations, in different partnerships. But again, for uh, reasons that I explained at the beginning, trying to be counterintuitive, I make sure that people first understand what is the importance of the current relationship, because there are lots of lies about its importance. Let's start with its importance for China. The totality of investments, outward investments of China directed to Africa are only 4% of Chinese investments in the world. So it is as much as Pakistan. That's the importance of Africa for China. Then you go in, in terms of what is, in terms of investment, obviously, what is its importance on trade is a bit superior because we are now at 200 billion and it's the largest single trading partner as a country. But you know, you go into the details of that uh, trade relationship, it's actually highly favorable to Africa because it's mostly about Africa sending stuff that is unprocessed, you know, raw materials, extractives. And we, we ought to change that because if you are going to do industrialization, we want to continue to export to China even more and to have a superavit in our relations with China, which is the case right now, but with more transformed products, with more value addition. And then I go into the importance of China for the Africans. And then you discover some things that are quite striking. Like for instance, I'm going to give you just anecdotes because we don't have time for more, but uh, one or two anecdotes will tell you uh, a bit what, what I have in mind. There are eight African carriers that fly to China. One of them, Ethiopian Airlines, flies to five cities daily. There is only one carrier from China that flies to Africa. And that carrier started only last year flying to Africa and still only has two flights and those two flights are not daily. You know, one to Johannesburg and another one to Addis in Nairobi are not daily. So that shows who is, who is going. <laughs> the Africans are going there. Uh, another one is the third largest IT company in China is Tencent. Tencent is 33% hold, uh, hold by an African company called Naspers, which happens to be the largest African corporation right now, based in the city where I'm based, Cape Town. Naspers stake in this uh, Tencent is now valued at $120 billion. The totality of exports from South Africa to the world is 90 billion. So just this company has more value 
in one company in China, they're the entire exports of the most industrialized country in the continent. Now, if you go into the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, people don't realize that that stock exchange has $1 trillion capitalization. This is, this is larger than Mumbai. This is at par with Sao Paulo. And yet, this capitalization is largely due to the banks, financial sector, and the largest bank, Standard Bank, has 3% stake from Chinese bank. So you see, if we go in and try to, to understand the numbers, the picture is much more complex of interaction between the two sides. And what is presented in most of the media and analysts is to say, yeah, Africans are being invaded by China, et cetera, et cetera. It's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, it's the same, you know, now in my capacity as negotiator with Europe, when I tell the Europeans, and I'm going to finish with that point, when I tell the Europeans, we don't want to discuss development aid, we want to discuss serious partnership. We say, but you know, we are, we are trying to help the continent. So it's a very sort of positive um, way of putting it. We, we are trying to help, you know, we can even increase that aid. That's the objective. So, yeah, of course, I mean, whatever you give, I'm not going to say no. But what we need to say to the public opinion is that Africa is your third largest trading partner. The first is the US, the second is China, and the third is Africa. So Africa is more important trade partner of Europe than Japan, than Canada, than Australia. I picked these three not by chance. Three countries with which you have very extensive partnership agreements centered on trade. So you feel that it's extremely important for the stability of the system that Europeans have very strong, well-discussed, sophisticated trade agreements with the number four, number seven, number 15, etc. But you don't think it is important to have it with number three, which is Africa. And the issue normally is that, yeah, but Africa doesn't have an instrument that really puts all the economies together, and that's true. So in the book, I try to demonstrate that this is exactly the reason why we are working on this continental free trade area, and we have to change completely the configuration of our relationships, starting with China, because China is already treating the continent as a unit. And that's why it's going to define the way we are going to shape this type of relationships with the rest of the world. Thank you. Well, there you go. This happens very rarely in this room. <laughs> in the middle of, of a discussion, you get, you get an applause, and indeed you deserve it. But before we go to the question and answers, uh, which I think is going to be very interesting as well, and you can add detail and other, and other provocative views, if we stop here, you could change the title of your book into The Great Illusion, almost. So give us some hope before we go to the question. So in your book, you also talk about the light at the end of the virus tunnels. And not every challenge is a tunnel in, in the way you approach the, the challenge. It's more like reading data yes. and, and non-existent data in an alternative way. And this is 
basically what you do very well in other other places also and i'm referring to your interviews uh, in the press etc and also in your tour presenting this book because basically you're covering all the continents presenting presenting your book give us some hope also with regard or what when you project africa must be some hope i guess and you're projecting an international landscape that is currently in transition and so what is there for africa for the africans to hope and for us to hope for africa in the in a changing transitioning landscape of international affairs well in, in, i'm going to put it in simple terms but you know uh, you you will have to read the book to to get the full picture i'm just saying that the quality of diagnosis is bad so the fact that the quality is not good has to be inserted in the reflection itself and therefore we'll end up with different set of policy recommendations i make those policy recommendations against the challenges that i've identified as the most important it's a subjective list but it's my list uh, it's the things that i have been confronted with that i believe are the most critical then i divide the pie i say basically you have two groups of countries in africa you have the countries that are rent seekers and you have the countries that are reformists i'm not very much interested in rent seekers because it's i define what they are but you know you can more or less figure you know if you if you have 35 countries that are highly commodity dependent which is the case for uh, african continent you start to get the picture that you know you get you get rent from a commodity that you don't transform from that rent basically you do some of your public expenditure but you can also steal a lot of it it's very easy to steal uh and you you don't care with the rest of, about the rest of the economy so you can leave it you know without fiscal pressure without form, uh, formal transactions informality etc because you are living with sort of a cocoon a small economy that is based on this rent what i'm what i am a bit more original is to say that for certain countries that are classified with all kinds of names that i don't like like fragile states etc what we have created is a different type of dependency that is very much rent seeking behavior but instead of oil they have aid but they behave exactly the same way so they don't have copper but they have aid they don't have diamonds but they have aid but they behave the same and i'm interested in the reformists and what are the reformists i define them with three characteristics i say the reformists are are ambitious sophisticated and coherent and then i qualify each one of them ambition is when they are capable of looking into the mega trends particularly two mega trends demographics and climate change and shape their policies responding to what is going to happen not just what is already happening that's very very critical and a few countries are mastering this but not many sophistication is by it's basically about focus by being focused your international relations from an economic perspective are about you knowing to the very granular detail everything about the areas that you decided your economy to concentrate because we are in a globalized world 
because of those characteristics, you need to understand the value chains from A to Z. You can't do it for all of them, so you have to pick one or two. Let's say you want to become a coffee producer. Well, you, you have to understand that for any product nowadays, the branding and the design counts for most of the value. The second is the supply chain capabilities. And only the third is actually manufacturing and doing things. So I try to make that distinction and say focus is about picking the right winners, defying a bit the definition that economists like of comparative advantages because they look at it from a static point of view, your geography, the things you have, and so on, and make it more dynamic. You decide on something, it can be something that you never did before, but you studied it from A to Z, and you know what are your entry points, and you persist. And you have to be prepared for failure because you are not going to win the first time. So you will fail, but you will learn. and You have to invest. And then coherence is about making sure that governments are managed in a completely different way from what we are used to. As someone that has been dealing with planning for a long time, I captured it in one slogan. If your Ministry of Industry is in charge of industrialization, it will not happen. So it's just to make it simple. Industrialization is about the macro policy that everybody has to contribute towards. The Minister of Industry is basically just one player amongst others. It's maybe the regulator that makes sure that you know you have standard settings and stuff like that. But it's about the entire country, each and every ministry and each and every economic actor way beyond the state being involved in making it happen. That's coherence. And very few countries are capable of mastering ambition, sophistication, and coherence. Those who do, they are succeeding. And I have lots of successful examples in Africa. So that, that is the hope that you were asking. So there we go. Hope you enjoyed this library talk with Carlos Lopez presenting his book, Africa and Transformation. If you would like to learn more or engage with the work of Carlos Lopez, you can find him on Twitter at the handle at Lopez Insights. You can also follow us and engage with the work of the UN Library Geneva on Facebook and Twitter at UNOG Library. Thanks again for joining us and see you soon for the next page.